Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Andrew Porter appeared on Barbara's short story panel at the LA Times Book Festival earlier this year, and I became totally enamored with his latest collection, The Disappeared, and decided we definitely need to talk more. In addition to The Disappeared, Andrew is the author of the collections The Theory of Light and Matter, which among other awards won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction, and In Between Days, which was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection, and an Indie Bound Indie Next selection. Andrew's stories have appeared in One Story, Plowshares, The Southern Review, and other prestigious journals. He has had his work read on NPR's selected shorts and twice selected as one of the distinguished stories of the year by Best American Short Stories. He's also a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and currently a professor of English and the director of the Creative Writing Program at Trinity University in San Antonio. Today we're talking about The Disappeared, along with the state of the short story in contemporary American literature and why more people don't read them enough, what makes a story successful, effective beginnings and endings, and everything in between. Before I bring him on, a reminder to visit our Patreon page. We're offering special tips and perks to our patrons. Hopefully the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. If so, look for us there, patreon.com slash writers on writing. We also invite you to leave a review of our show on Apple, Amazon, however, wherever you consume your podcasts. That alerts new listeners to the show and that helps us out too. On with the show. Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So before we dive into the collection, as I previewed here, I'd just love to get your thoughts kind of on the state of the short story in the marketplace, because, you know, collections seem to do super well. They might win a Pulitzer or, you know, Alice Monroe win a Nobel. And then we hear publishers can't sell them. And, you know, they kind of seem to come in and out of favor where I see tons of them that I don't see as, as many as I wish I had. So tell me a little bit about kind of your sense, because you're so squarely in this world of sort of the the health of the short story in our culture right now. Yeah, well, I'm a little bit biased because I, you know, I think that I I, I read so many collections and I'm, I'm really always focused on kind of what's coming out. And so I might have a bit of a skewed perspective, but I think the health of the short story is, is good. I mean, I think you know the the panel that you alluded to that that Barbara led at the LA Times uh, Festival of the Book. It was a packed auditorium to listen to four short story writers talk about their collection. And as you said, I mean, there are great collections coming out every year. Whenever you see the kind of end of the year book prizes, the National Book Award, National Book Critics Circle, like there there are always collections on there. Often they win. So I don't know. I, I again, I'm kind of biased. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. Because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, but I really, but I know what you're saying. They, they've. I, I just feel like since I've started writing short stories, they've always been saying that the short stories in decline. The you know, it's 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 in trouble, <laughs> and it persists. And I think they'll always be a good audience for the for the forum. And you know, I know I have a lot of friends who are you know, huge fans of the forum and, 
and I certainly know a lot of writers who kind of specialize in the short story and, you know, they're selling books and doing well and, and they have nice audiences for their work. So I don't know. I maybe um, I'm, I'm looking at everything through rose tinted glasses, but that's that's kind of my view. <laughs> that's what we have to do. Yeah. Well, to that point, I don't know if you saw it, but Rebecca Mackay recently wrote a piece for Substack on why you aren't reading short stories and why you should. And unfortunately, funnily, her first observation was that they're super hard to talk about in interviews. So we're going to, we're going to, I always do my best with that. But I, you know, I don't know if you saw that piece, but I wondered A, if it sounds like you don't quite agree with the premise, but, but I'd love for you to just kind of make the case for them, what they can do for readers, why we should be reading more and what they can do that the novel can't. Yeah. I mean, I think what you get with, with a short story and with a collection is you get these kind of small glimpses into the lives of characters who I think might, you might normally not devote an entire novel to, you know, I think I always think of Frank O'Connor's famous hypothesis about short stories being about kind of outsiders or loners or characters on kind of the fringes of society characters who are not in the center of the room, but kind of <laughs> right. in the periphery of the party. And and I do, I think it, they are, are often about these kind of lonely voices. And they're not the types of characters you would normally devote an entire novel to, perhaps for that reason. However, I, I think that there, I don't know, there, there's great pleasure, at least for me, in kind of getting glimpses into these lives. And I think for fans of the short story, they they tend to kind of like those types of characters and like spending time with characters who often are, for one reason or another, alienated. So I don't know. I think that for me, the pleasure of the form is that kind of brief glimpse into a life. And, you know, with a really good collection, you know, it, it's, it's a kind of consistent delight. Your career followed a very sort of traditional path. As I mentioned at the beginning, you went to Iowa, um, you had two collections out, but there was one major deviation from the path where a lot of your work was stolen at one point. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of digging out of that creative hole and whether in hindsight, now that it's been some chunk of years, a couple of decades, if you look back on that and feel like it was sort of a net benefit to the course of your career and how it unfolded from there, or if you still sort of feel like that was, I mean, certainly it was unfortunate, but, but if there were kind of good things that came out of that experience for you. Yeah, I think there were definitely good things that came out of it. The main one being that it really tested my commitment to this life <laughs> yes. um, because it was so kind of traumatizing and, yeah, to just give listeners a little background, this was the year after I left Iowa. I was about 25. I had had a year to, on a fellowship to just write the entire year. And, and I, I lost basically a book's worth of work or almost all of the work I'd really done up to that point in my life, but my first short story collection. And I think up until that point, as you said, I was kind of following almost a traditional path. You know, I went from college, undergraduate workshops into the Iowa program at a young age. You know, I had an agent at a young age. I had begun to publish work and everything seemed to kind of be falling into place in a very 
logical way. And when this book was stolen or when all of my work was stolen, I mean, it, it just completely derailed what I thought was, you know, a, a, the beginning of hopefully a good career. And suddenly I had nothing. <laughs> and I, I went through a couple years of just kind of trying to trying to process that, accept it, in some ways, like mourn the loss of that work. And then also figure if I was able to bounce back from it, you know, did I have, now that I didn't have a fellowship funding me, now that I wasn't in graduate school, now that I had to kind of figure out a way to make a living outside of writing, was I going to have the strength and resiliency to kind of stick with it? And I wasn't sure for a lot of <laughs> time. Um, and I even considered other career paths, law school, things like that. And, you know, for whatever reason, I just, it kept haunting me. And I just realized this is, this is who I am for better or worse. And I eventually got back on track and I very slowly began writing again and one by one, I, I wrote the stories in my first collection. So, but yeah, I think it was, it was a good thing. And I think all writers need to be tested. I don't, I don't know that all writers need to be tested in the way. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but everyone needs to be tested at various points. And, you know, just, just to kind of like, see if you, if you have what it takes to kind of stick with what is really at times a very difficult life path. And so once I kind of got through that, I was like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm in it <laughs> for the long haul. <laughs> well, let's introduce the collection, going back to Rebecca Mackay's point and trying to summarize um, a collection of stories, which is somewhat difficult. But this collection, among a lot of collections that I, that I read, actually, I mean, there's such strong themes and such strong connective tissue between these 15 stories. So perhaps in some ways, this is an easier to collection to introduce than than some others. But talk a little bit about the disappeared, kind of over the course of what period of time these stories were written about and and kind of what was on your mind in assembling these 15. So these stories are really about a lot about characters kind of in their 40s and the types of conflicts that that one often encounters in one's 40s. And you know, for me it really grew again kind of it came after what was a kind of difficult period for me as a writer, which was not as a person, but as a writer, that the, the years just after my children were born, um, as as many <laughs> parent writers will will tell you, those those are really tough years for writing just because, you know, you're kind of in the trenches, you're adapting to this new way of life, and you're trying to find windows of time to write, and you're always exhausted, et cetera, et cetera. And so even though it was this incredible period of time personally, and even though I was kind of on cloud nine in certain ways, in terms of my writing, I was really not able to write in the way I used to. And, and I basically just kind of wasn't writing for a few years. And kind of not sure how I was going to be able to write from this point forward, not knowing whether I'd ever really have the time again. And also not knowing how to write about, I felt like fundamentally changed by becoming a, a parent and by becoming a father. And I didn't know how to write about this kind of new reality that I was in either. And so this is all kind of a long answer to your question. But one day I kind of sat down and um, I started writing the first story in the collection 
Austin. And it just, I wrote that, I started at the beginning of that story. And over the course of that week, I, I finished it, which was pretty quick for me. And once I finished that story, it felt like I had kind of opened up the floodgates and I could see not necessarily a book, but I just felt like, okay, now I understand how I can write about this period of time in one's life or in my life, partly. And I realized that I wanted to kind of do variations on the themes introduced in that story and to kind of use that story as a kind of reference point for everything that followed. And and so luckily I had a sabbatical that was coming up shortly after that. And I just spent that sabbatical writing pretty much all of the stories, or at least starting almost all of the stories that that are in the book here, as well as a number of others that didn't make it in. But it, like I said, it was like the floodgates open. I hadn't had free time to write. My kids were finally in preschool <laughs> during the, and I just had like three days. And I just, I wrote like every day and I was just churning out a lot of content. And I just, it was, it was incredible. And so most of this book was written in about a, or started at least in about a six month period of time or nine month, six to nine month period of time. And then oh my I can, God. yeah, some of the stories I had to, you know, took a couple years to, to get in final shape and that type of thing. But, but yeah, I mean, they all kind of came out of this really fruitful period of time that was kind of being like me kind of, I don't know, I was <laughs> releasing giving birth, the nine yeah. month gestation period of all of these stories. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that first story, Austin, because I was looking at the first sentence of that story and realizing how much it sets up about the collection as a whole. I mean, it puts us in a place where a lot of these stories take takes place. It sets up that I think all 15 of these stories are told from the first person point of view. So we know that. And then it kind of introduces this notion of revisiting an older time of your life where your college friends, I picture these college friends, you know, are, are trying to recapture that sense of youth. They're sitting around a fire pit, they're smoking. And that theme just reverberates through so many of these stories throughout the collection. And I was just kind of marveling at how much you could do in that first sentence to set up, you know, the, the 15 stories that followed. So that was, was really cool. So Austin was the first one that you wrote. It was. And some, yeah, for the reasons that you mentioned, I mean, that that opening sentence, that opening situation, I just felt like it was opening up into a world that was a bigger world than just that story. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was thinking about this collection as sort of the big chill of short story collections. You know, it's that <laughs> <laughs> kind of time of life. It's funny when you read something because this weekend was my 30th college reunion that I didn't go to, but I'm watching from afar. And it does put you in that mindset of how much time has passed and um, and trying to recapture that time. And you can see all these, you know, now they all look like old people in these settings where you had all of these experiences. And that really also was a lot of what this what this collection was about. And we should also mention that it's really a lovely mixture of kind of traditional short story length pieces, 20, 30 pages, and blended with some flash fiction pieces. And I kind of want to get into the the pleasures and perils of flash fiction because I love that form as well. But that cadence and that kind of orchestration of 
short, long. It had a, a musicality to it. Music's another theme in the book. So yeah, there was just so much. So tell me a little bit, and it would be kind of fun to to take a few of these and break them down. And maybe Austin's a good place to start. I always like to do this exercise on the show with writers of how a story started, what you thought it was about, what it turned out to be about after after it was finished and you understood what it was to be about. And it sometimes makes sense to do this with some of the stories that were maybe trickier for you or that were confounding to you. But I wonder if we could kind of pluck one of these out and take it from kind of messy origin and kind of what you were thinking about before you even started writing to kind of working our way through it as you revised it to what it becomes. Is there a story that that makes sense to do that with in here? Or we could do it with a couple of them. I, I could do it with any of them. Some of these did come more quickly than others. Like Austin was one that that did come rather quickly. You know, a story like Rhinebeck was one that had a more complicated revision process and writing process. It, it took a lot longer than some of the others that, that could Fantastic. be. Fantastic. Yeah. Let's start there. Maybe we should introduce it a little bit so that people kind of know what we're talking about in terms of the scope of the story. But tell me a little bit about that, that story, and then we can dissect it a little better. Sure. So it's a story set in Rhinebeck, New York, and it's about really three college friends, two of whom are a, a married couple and the other is a kind of third wheel to their relationship. And he's the narrative lens through which we view the story. And they were college friends who lived together in New York City and then moved up to Rhinebeck together when the couple opened a restaurant. And the husband is a chef and his wife kind of works in the front of the house and and does other things with the restaurant. And the premise of the story is that they're kind of now like in their 40s, they're thinking about making a move geographically and they want to move to Austin, which where there's a kind of thriving restaurant scene and they want to kind of open a new restaurant and move down there. And it's really a story about this narrator coming to terms with the fact that they're likely going to be moving. He's going to be left in Rhinebeck and that he's become had this kind of dependency on that relationship in the same way they've had a dependency on their relationship with him um, for about 20 years. And it's about having to kind of, it's about a reckoning in a way, like kind mm-hmm. of having, to, having to, to face the fact that he's lived a life that's been attached to other people's lives and that he doesn't really know what his life is going to be when they leave. So it was just to me like a kind of interesting situation. There are a lot of kind of triangulations in the various stories in this book. And and this was kind of a triangulation in which it's told from the kind of third wheel character connected to this marriage. Yes. I was going to bring that up. There are so many tri situations here. And often they're the case where the narrator is kind of outside the action. Even, Even in married couples, whatever is going on in the coupledom our point of view narrator is usually the person that whatever the crisis is happening is not happening to them. They're more of an observer of the crisis, which gives you a lot of power, I think, of being outside of things and looking in. I always feel like we're kind of looking into a a window here with these characters. So it started with this third wheel guy. Is that or did it start with kind of the the triangle situation? 
Yeah, it started with the kind of the opening. I mean, I wrote the op- this was one where the the opening section of it is actually was the original opening section. So I started with this guy kind of just describing his life and explaining how he, you know, he lives in Rhinebeck and this this couple who run a restaurant are his best friends and he goes there every night and he's kind of giving a kind of glimpse into his life. But then slowly this early on this idea of them possibly moving to Austin is introduced. So in the in the initial kind of draft of the story, I was aware that that was going to be perhaps something that that became a bigger deal as the story went on. But to be honest, in writing this story, like uh, my stories always come in different ways, like Austin, which I mentioned, like that was written in a very linear way over the course of five days. And I wrote it like sentence by sentence. And this story was very different in that I just was intrigued by the situation, but I didn't know how to write about it in the form of a, like how to structure a story about it. And so I just started writing about these characters and this narrator's relationship with them. And so I wrote about their time in college. I wrote about their time in New York. I wrote about their time now in Rhinebeck, all these different periods of their friendship. And I didn't know how it was going to fit together <laughs> or how it was going to have a structure to it. It was just a lot of what I'd call just kind of exploratory writing. And I probably wrote about 70 pages or so, like double-spaced word pages about these characters, which I knew was like way too long. I knew I wasn't writing a novel, but I was like, <laughs> this is getting long for a story. But I felt like I needed to really explore the the relationship in depth to understand how to write the story. And so once I had those 70 pages, it became about figuring out the best way to, to structure it and to kind of winnow it down and figure out what was going to be important to the story and what wasn't. And so one of the things I realized was, well, there has to be a kind of present story conflict here. And that conflict that I introduce about them moving or wanting to potentially move down to Austin became the, the, that kind of present story arc that held the story together and allowed me to kind of weave in these all, all these other memories and references to past events and stuff. So that that's kind of how it ended up coming together. But it took a long time. It took a few years. I, think, I feel like it took two years at least. And one of the reasons was because I got it about 80% or 90% there, and I couldn't figure out how to end the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that happens to me too. Sometimes I just, either the ending is like immediately clear to me, or it really el- eludes me. And this was a case of a story I was, I did not know how to end it for the longest time. And I just had to kind of keep working through it until I found the right note to end on. And I ended up being really happy with the ending, but it took it took me a long time to to find it. 
And when, just speaking about endings, because yes, they're so elusive, especially for short stories, for a lot of writers. And and then I'm wondering, like, do you just know when when it lands finally, is it kind of an intuitive, yeah, that's the emotion that I was going for, or is that's the, that's the resonance? You know, you can kind of hear the, the reverberations of the bell ringing once you, once you land it correctly. How do you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, to use the example of Austin, that was one where that ending just, when it came, I just, I just felt it was right. You know, I, I got to that last line and it, I felt like I just felt it, you know, this was the ending and that was an easy one, but in other cases, you're not sure how to end it, or it just, you know, for lack of better way to put it, like you just, it just doesn't feel right. You know, it's not, you feel like the story deserves a more resonant type of sentence or moment to end on. And you feel like this is pretty good, but it's just, it's not going to blow the reader away, right? It's not going to really resonate in the way that you hope. And so you kind of keep searching for something that's a little bit better. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's a lot about kind of going back into what I've written already and sometimes looking for the ending there, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and it was actually advice that an old professor of mine, um, the writer Frank Conroy, when I was in grad school, used to talk about, he was like, the ending is always in what you've written before. It's in there somewhere. It's in an image. It's in a line of dialogue. It's in something that you've already introduced. And so rather than kind of looking outside the story for like, what would make a a great twist or something, rather than doing that, I always go back into the story. It's often sort of an emotion as opposed to a, I mean, it's never really resolved in a novelistic sort of, we're going to, you know, cap off all the I's and T's. <laughs> it's it's much more a feeling of expansiveness. Actually, you had worked with Marilyn Robinson also at some point, and, and I had read that she was talking about the importance of allowing your characters to have sort of the open destiny of life, I think was her phrase at the yeah. end of a short story. And sort of that feeling that kind of anything could happen or there's some sense of hope. I don't know if I'm paraphrasing that right. Yeah. And that's one of the that's one of the things since we were talking about the short story form and and what we like about it, that's one of the things that I love about great short stories is that even stories that end in a place where the characters may be worse off than they were at the start of the story, you know, in a good story, there's always some hope there. There's always some chance that the character could change, right? You know, their fate is never like sealed, right? You know, there's always some little glimmer of hope. And Marilyn would talk about that a lot in class. And I always think about that when I come to the ending of stories, I want there to be some light there. And maybe that's why in the story of Rhinebeck, I kind of end in a happy moment in a way, in a happy memory as a way of kind of counterbalancing some of the sadder elements of the story. And and so maybe I shouldn't give that away, but. It's funny because I was even thinking about that with Tobias Wolff's bullet in the brain. I mean, you don't get much more final than his character dying at the end. And yet he still managed to put in a little bit of hope at the end of of just like this, all these memories. And we know how it ends, you know, we know it ends poorly, but, but yet there was some, something like that. It's hard to put my finger on exactly how he managed to accomplish it, but there was something like that still 
even in the the most dire of circumstances, these these reverberations of memories that that he had. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of light in that ending. I mean, it, that's one of the reasons that 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 last sentence always gives me chills because it's it is yeah. it's the beautiful beautiful moment that 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 works against kind of everything that's come before. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of these stories, there's kind of just this little play with infidelity and it's, it's rarely sexual infidelity, but it's this, this trio of characters who give up confidences or, or establish real intense emotional intimacies or just kind of flirt with the the triangle thing that comes when a third person is introduced into a marriage and you examine that from you know it's almost like you've got this beautiful geode in your hand and you just keep turning it and shining the light on different aspects of that trio relationship and and I was wondering if you could talk for just a moment about sort of the the power of three in a short story and when you think a short story, I think it was silhouettes where there's at some point there's six characters. And I was like, ah, that's a lot of characters on the page. And they were all necessary for that story in the end. But when you feel, and if it has happened to you that you just have too many, too many people walk onto the stage of a short story and you have to uh, clear the decks a little bit with them. Talk talk about kind of the numbers of characters in, in stories. Yeah. Well, I do like threes a lot. I think threes are great just in general, but for, for stories, but I also, I like small stories, like, like, and what I mean by that is just like, like a kind of self-contained narrative world, like maybe one or two settings at most, a small cast of characters. I like to work with those types of constraints, but I think when you, you know, because a lot of these stories are about relationships right that if you only have two characters it's really limiting as a writer like you you have nowhere to go except another scene with those two characters (laughs) and then it becomes it feels kind of static maybe a little claustrophobic but when you introduce some third character who is complicating the story in some way or you know affecting the relationship in some way, you suddenly have a lot of narrative possibilities. You know, you can create a lot of different types of combinations. You can have, you know, the two, the married couple together. You can have them, each of them individually with the third character. You can have all three of them together and you can create a lot of different dynamics to play off of. And it becomes a lot more interesting and complex then. And so for me, like I was doing that, as you said, I, I like the way that you phrased that a lot. Like I was just kind of taking, doing kind of variations on this idea in a few of the stories. And I wanted these certain stories to almost mirror each other in, in certain ways. And so like in the story Rhinebeck, you have that kind of outsider character to the relationship. You get their perspective. But in a story like Vines, you have it narrated from someone within the relationship and the outsider character is kind of an outsider. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I I think I just find that type of dynamic really interesting and, and wanted to explore it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Speaking of vines, which you just brought up a moment ago, I wondered if we could talk about that one and, and maybe do a little dissecting of that one. The thing that I thought was so interesting about that story is the framing around it. 
So it essentially, you know, the the full bulk of the story takes place in the past, but it's wrapped around um, a memory is wrapped around it, right? So so we start present day and then we're launched into the past into this relationship that happened 20 some years ago. And so maybe you could kind of introduce that story so that we <laughs> we know what we're talking about again and then I'll ask you a couple of questions about it. Sure. So it starts out with a a, a guy who's sort of older, looking back on a younger time in his life when I think he's in maybe his late 20s and early 30s, when he lived in San Antonio with a woman who was an artist and is about one summer where they were given the opportunity to kind of live in this apartment. And she was given a studio on the premises of this older artist property and kind of the a particular neighborhood of San Antonio. And it's just about kind of the course of that summer and the way that she develops a body of work and has a very fruitful kind of generative phase in terms of her art and kind of sees her career emerging as an artist at the same time that there's this this guy who's who's allowing them to stay on the property who's an older successful artist who seems like at first to be a kind of benevolent presence in their lives and then less so <laughs> as the story progresses. But you find out in the opening paragraph of the story, so it's not a spoiler that, you know, he's the, the narrator is kind of looking at a painting that she gave to him when they were together. And you find out that she's she's since died of cancer. And so it's very, you know, from the beginning that, that she dies, but it's about this period of time before that when they were together and it's about their relationship over the course of the summer. And the narrator is not an artist. He's, but he's very supportive of her art. And um, I don't know, I, I, you see so many relationships where you have this kind of sense of competition or this rivalry within a relationship connected to art. And I just wanted him to be a full-on supporter of her and and her work and and to see how that type of perspective might work for this type of story. Yeah. And did you always know that that it would be told from that distance? So we, you know, we kind of know the ending from the we kind of know what happened from the beginning that she's already gone and and the relationship is over. Was the beginning kind of always the beginning that it was going to be told as a retrospective? Yeah. I, again, that one also started with that image of this guy kind of cleaning out his closet, finding this painting, and that painting, you know, being the kind of um, catalyst for this, you know, the, the, this memory of the past. And yeah, and then it became about, well, why is he telling this story? You know, that became the question that drives it, since you know what happens to her, and essentially, you know that they're that what that means for their relationship. And you know from the beginning she's a past girlfriend, right? That she's not, you know, this is someone from his past. You know that things end with them. Then it becomes about why is he telling the story? And that became the question that intrigued me as I wrote it. I love that you said that because um, I was thinking about sort of what happens in a story versus what the story is about. And this story all of them really, but this story, <laughs> it comes to mind now of if you told what it was about, which you just did, or what what happened, it's so different than what it really is about. And 
the ending of it is so interesting to me because it ends on an image of a character who really played a more minor role in the story. We didn't see her a lot, and yet it ends on the image of her, which is really, to me, sort of a, a key of what it's about, which is this man feeling a little bit more invisible in older age or, you know, the, the past is really fading out and the last image is, you know, she's looks at him and has no idea who he was, that he's just kind of becoming this invisible figure as he grows older, which is another reverberating theme through all of these stories. So yeah, it was, it's always fun for me to recount the plot points versus recount the aboutness of stories. And they're often pretty divergent. Yeah, I know that especially with stories, I think sometimes when you describe the plot of them, it it seems like very simple or not, you know, and and it's, 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 it's hard to kind of capture what the story is, but you're right, it's about so much more than just those events. But, um, and yes, you're right, that ending is kind of introducing in some way, you know, that theme where it's reverberating off that theme of feeling invisible, which, which a number of the characters feel at various points in different stories. Yeah. I guess bullet in the brain is another example of that. If you said what happened, you're like a guy gets shot in a bank. (laughs) That is absolutely not what it's about. Right. (laughs) Another interview I read that you did also talking about Marilyn Robinson, you were saying that, that her insight is that the majority of fiction is about characters coming to some understanding about their false relationship to the truth. And you know, as I was reading that and then thinking about that through, you know, then th- reading, rereading these stories through the lens of that, it really became more clear to me. And I, I was kind of wondering how much you had that advice on the brain or if you ever have that advice on the brain when you're formulating these these pieces. Yeah, ev- with everything I write, I am always that line from Marilyn always comes into the the process at some point, because at some point I'm always like not sure what the story's about. And so I always go back to that line from Marilyn, you know, um, that that every, almost all fiction is about some character coming to some understanding of their false relationship to the truth. And I'm always thinking about what is that truth that they're not seeing about themselves, you know, um, that, or about their lives, you know, what what's that blind spot because so much of fiction is about a character kind of, particularly short fiction, like catching a glimpse of just a little glimpse of that blind spot in themselves. And that's that's why the story is being told for that that moment of recognition. And I just like that much better than the idea of like the character coming to a realization or the character having an epiphany. I think that frames it in a different way, but it's it's more about just this idea that there's this truth that they've not been seen at all, right? And uh, so when I can't figure out an ending, for example, I'm always thinking about, you know, what's the blind spot? What is what is the thing that they're really not seeing about themselves? And that always helps me to get to that, that ending somehow. And I assume, does that play a role in your decision to write Primarily, maybe I'll say exclusively, at least in this collection, exclusively in the first person, because you're you're so locked into that character's point of view, you can't get out of it in first person. And so their own blind spots seem like they would you're locked inside. So you can't you can't escape them. Is Does that sort of influence your choice of first person? It really does. I mean, that's one of the things I love 
about the first person. I just love the unreliability. And I love the fact that on the one hand, you're building this connection with the reader and this trust, and you're trying to seem very reliable. <laughs> but there's always with all of these characters, right? There, There's an, a level of unreliability. And I love as a writer figuring out what that is, you know, again, kind of if as confidently as they might be telling this story, like what are they not seeing about the story or about themselves or about what's going on? I love, I just love that, that aspect of working in the first person. And it's one of the reasons, particularly with stories, I think I just return to it again and again. We'll be right back with more from Andrew Porter and The Disappeared in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, if you like these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these collections get made, this is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. You can visit www.patreon.com slash writersonwriting. Let's get back to it with Andrew Porter talking about The Disappeared. Let's talk a little bit about flash fiction. There's probably five or six, I forgot to count, flash fiction pieces in here. And it's clear sometimes there's a misunderstanding of what makes flash fiction pieces work and not work. And A, I'm wondering if you if you feel like the rules are different, aside from word count, if you feel like the rules are a little bit different for flash versus traditional short story forms. Yeah, I do think they are. And I don't claim to be a, an expert of in, in flash fiction at all. I think it's it's something I just kind of came to right around the time I was writing in this the stories in this book. So I, I feel like I'm still discovering that form. Um but but I will say that, yeah, I do think that the rules are a little bit different. And, you know, for me, like, it's really about the feeling that the piece gives you when you come to that last sentence, kind of like a good poem, right? You know, you can be kind of lukewarm about a, a poem, but if it ends on that, a particular, sen- you know, particular line, it can just completely work. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and- yes. And I sort of feel like flash fiction is that way too. It like really depends upon that last line resonating in a particular way. And so when I was writing the the flash pieces for this collection, I wrote way more than I ended up using. And I kind of approached it as a kind of hit or miss thing where I'd sit down, give myself 20 or 25 minutes to, to try to write something kind of quickly and it either worked or it didn't. <laughs> and I either kind of hit hit on that last line and I was like, that feels right. Or it just kind of didn't. And, and my feeling was when it didn't, I didn't spend too much time with it and I moved on. So I kind of wrote a, a, a kind of large quantity of those just as experiments. And then, and then, you know, a good number didn't work and then some did. And then of those, some made it into the, the book. The great thing about them, obviously, they all work as standalone pieces, but also they add such a great texture to the book because a lot of them either bring up a texture of Texas, either food or 
yeah, mostly food, actually, <laughs> chilies and limes and soup that just gave another dimension to the place you're writing about, which I guess kind of brings me to the question of place being a character in the book and you living and working in the place that you're writing about. So, yeah, I, I thought just as a, a final observation on those flash pieces that it really gave yet another sense of life in Texas. Uh, and I, I don't know if that at all was on the, the brain as you were working on this. Yeah. By the time I started, became kind of interested in experimenting with Flash, I was I was realizing that I'd written enough of the stories that I realized that that I was going to use Texas as a kind of common backdrop or, or a linking element in the book. And so because of that, and because I wanted to kind of incorporate these Flash pieces into the book or try to... I was very conscious of using prompts for myself that connected to the setting. A lot of those titles were just kind of my one word prompt to myself, where I would just take a word that I connected with the setting of San Antonio, like Pozole or Chili or Limes. And then I would use that word as a kind of, right, the prompt for that little writing session that day, that, that little attempt at a flash piece. And so I have many more with names like Mezcal and Ave <laughs> and all sorts of things. But but these that was kind of the idea is, as you said, to use them as a way of kind of reinforcing the feeling of the world of the book, which is a Texas world. I was reading an interview you did, I think, a while ago for Poets and Writers, but some student, you had set a story in Seattle and you'd never really spent any time in Seattle. And the student was, I think, asking kind of about setting. And you realized and, and had advised to always just be very intentional about the places you set things and that, you know, then you moved the, <laughs> the setting out of Seattle and back to Texas. So yeah, how important is it, do you think, to know a place inside and out before attempting to write about it? And I talk to a lot of writers who feel like they kind of have to, they must have, you know, lived in or spent time in a place, but it's hard for them to write about it when they're still inside of it. Like some distance gives them a little bit of help. Tell me a little bit about that. And, you know, if, if being in Austin or in these places in Texas made it a little bit even harder or easier to write about it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think in my experience, like there's certain places that I've lived that I've been able to write about and then other places that I haven't for whatever reason. You know, like I lived in Baltimore for three years, but I've never said anything uh, in Baltimore or, be, or been able to, even though I love that city. With San Antonio, for the first 10 years that I lived here, I was not able to set anything in San Antonio or even in Austin. It felt too close to the world I was living in. But that was one of the really interesting things about Austin is when I wrote that story, I thought I felt very comfortable suddenly writing about this world, which is the world of my life. You know, um, San Antonio and Austin are pretty close together. So I think of them as kind of the same region. But I thought, wow, I, I, I'm actually able to write something kind of close to home. And then when I was suddenly able to write about San Antonio, the same thing happened. And I realized only kind of after finishing the book that the reason for that was, I think, because, you know, my life circumstances had changed and I had, you know, I had children now and my sense of like where my home was suddenly changed 
to being, you know, this world. And that allowed me maybe to write about it, particularly since the stories are about characters who are of a certain age with children often and that type of thing. So I think that that helped. But yeah, for the first 10 years I lived here, I couldn't write about it. Other places I've lived, I've also not been able to write about at all. So I don't know what it is, but I tend to kind of trust my gut with that type of thing. And whenever I've tried to set things in places either that I'm not familiar with or that just aren't resonating for whatever reason, you know, I I just, I, I move away from it. You know, I have to feel like I can really feel comfortable in the, the setting. Well, and it so informs, I think, weather and food and all that so informs who characters are and there's so much great smoking in here. In my city, you can't smoke, so you would be in trouble. The weather, you know, the heat, the, you know, the the chili peppers, all of it just like informs who these people are. And and when you move them, like in Rhinebeck, it, you know, you really feel like it impacts who these people are. So yeah, I think it's worth spending a lot of time thinking about how you're gonna put these characters in a certain milieu that that's really gonna impact some of their actions and whether they're laying around half naked because it's so hot outside or whether they're bundled up and all that kind of stuff really (laughs) really makes a difference. The last story that I wanted to make sure we touched on before we have to go is bees because A, if people follow you on Facebook or social media, there's some really great imagery that came out with this story that I think it was reprinted or something recently. Yeah, it was reprinted in Telluride magazine, and it was originally published in the Colorado Review. But the editor of Telluride magazine, I guess, had read my collection in advance of publication and really liked that story and wanted to republish it. And so along with that, they had an illustrator illustrate various scenes from the story to be kind of published alongside the text. And yeah, they were really amazing. Yes. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. Yes. It's one of the few stories in here. I mean, certainly there's a lot of symbolism and metaphor embedded in all of the stories, but this one is perhaps the most overt example of metaphor, a hive of bees menacing outside this guy's house uh, as a metaphor running alongside what's going on inside of his marriage. And it almost made me wonder if that also came out of some sort of prompt or challenge that you gave to yourself to set story A, which is a very heavy symbol, alongside story B and kind of marry them together. But tell me just a little bit about how that came to be. I mean, there's always like usually some little piece of reality in my stories. And then I, you know, that, that, and, and often it is a kind of, sometimes it's an opening image, but it, it was certainly the case with bees that that was actually something that the surface conflict, not the the marriage conflict, but the surface conflict was something that happened in my real life where we had this laundry room and not in my current house, but my the first house we lived in San Antonio and this laundry room got infested with bees in the wall. And mm. it was a really terrible situation <laughs> yes. and, and very complicated. And, and part of, you know, for a, a good period of time, there was just always a kind of swarm of bees around that laundry room. So, you know, every time we like walked out to get in the car, there would, there'd be kind of this potential of getting stung and, and 
we eventually kind of got it fixed and and we had a, a beekeeper come out and and so all of the kind of opening of that was based on an actual circumstance but as it was happening i'm like this is a good starting point for something and <laughs> yes and and the metaphor of it yeah just kind of i was like this could be a great metaphor for something and so I just started with that situation. I think that was happening during that kind of sabbatical that when I was writing all these stories, that that was when this bee infestation happened. And so I was like, I'm going to use this. <laughs> and um, and then, but, you know, as I said, like the situation with the marriage and the wife kind of living, getting an apartment away from the house, that was all like, that was the fictional part. And I knew it needed more than just this bee situation to to give it some weight. So I thought, what could be the, the the larger problem in this person's life? And um, and so then, you know, it became about the fact his wife had kind of moved out and he was living with his daughter while his wife tried to kind of get back on track in her life. And as the B situation escalated, so did that situation. And I thought this could be a, a really interesting thing to kind of weave between. And so that that's kind of how that story came about, yeah. Yeah, I love those weaving stories where you're you're kind of playing off of storyline A and B at the same time. Do you read short fiction while you're writing? Are you reading other short story collections and writers, or does that kind of mess with your brain while you're doing it? No, it doesn't. I, I'm always reading. I always like one of my part of my process is I always just have a stack of books on my writing desk. I always begin my writing day by reading for a little bit from, you know sometimes a story, sometimes a novel, but there were certain books I was thinking about and rereading a lot as I was during this period of time when I was writing these stories. And one was Stuart Dybeck's The Coast of Chicago, um, which is one of my favorite collections. I was thinking a lot about that book and that's maybe why the kind of the the geographically linked element of this collection emerged um, and also the kind of intermixing of shorter and longer narratives. Sarah Majka's Cities I Never Lived In was another story that was a really important, uh, another collection, I should say, that was mm. a really important collection that I was rereading a lot as I was writing this book. And there were others, um, Charles D'Ambrosio's The Dead Fish Museum. There were like a few that I kind of like had on the writing desk beside me, um, just as kind of like, touchstones or I don't know, just ref, you know, just <laughs> reminders of kind of like what I was interested in fictionally right now. So no, I always read while I'm writing. I, I it's the two are intertwined for me. Well, the collection is fantastic and it is out and available now. I'm going to direct people to your website because well, for lots of reasons, but one, there's there's a host of really wonderful interviews, both print and audio interviews that you've done over the years for poets and writers and um, Glimmer Train and all these great publications that really expand and expound on a lot of your writing process and thinking about writing that I found super insightful. So um, I think it's just your name. Yeah. Andrew Porter. Is it Andrew Porter author? I'm trying to remember what your Andrew, website is. <laughs> AndrewPorterWriter.com. There yeah. we go. Yes. There are too many Andrew Porters out there for it to just be Andrew. <laughs> I kind of figured that might be right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but AndrewPorterWriter.com. Yes. Perfect. We will, we will direct people there. And, um, and I think people can follow you on, do you do much social media? I don't know if you do. 
Yeah, I do Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I also, I have, you know, Facebook as well, but I'm probably mostly on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, Perfect. We'll put links to those up there. Andrew Porter, congratulations. This was such a stunning collection. I can't wait for the next one. Oh, thank you so much. I, I, I loved, uh, our conversation about it. And it was really interesting to get get to talk about things I haven't talked about with the book before. So thank you so much for taking the time to read it. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and this was really an honor to, to talk to you. That was Andrew Porter. The book is The Disappeared. It's out and available now and published by Knopf. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.